The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of God for the people of God. We worshiped our way into this mess and we'll have to worship our way out. Those are the words of Paul Tripp, who is an author and counselor. And I think that's one of the most dense and succinct summaries I've ever come across of a biblical anthropology. That's where I want to start this morning as we dive into the book of Ephesians. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're beginning a study of this New Testament epistle to the Ephesians. Anthropology is simply the question, what does it mean to be a human being? And that question is the question of our day. That's the question that lies at the heart of all of our debates about sexuality and gender. That's the question that lies at the heart of all of our debates about artificial intelligence. That's the question that lies at the heart of all of our debates about justice. What does it mean to be a human being? That's the question we have to answer in order to answer all those other questions. It's also the question we have to answer to make sense of our own personal and existential questions. What kind of being am I? What are my responsibilities to the people around me, to the world I live in, and to God, if there is a God? Christianity has an anthropology. It offers an answer to the question, what is a human being? And in my opinion, it's one of the most profound and provocative answers out there. The Christian answer to that question comes down to this. To be a human being is to be a worshiper. Everybody worships. Worship is not something that religious people do. Worship is something everybody does. C.S. Lewis makes this point rather memorably in his Reflections on the Psalms. 
Um, he writes this, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poets, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, colleges, countries. And just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Lewis is right, isn't he? We praise what we enjoy. Or to state another way, your life is a doxology. Your life is declaring the praises of something or someone. And the goal of the Bible and the goal of Christian preaching is to hold up before you the glorious God, the creator of heaven and earth, the redeemer of human beings, and to ask, is whatever you're praising as worthy of praise as this one? And that's how the book of Ephesians begins. It begins with a massive doxology. It begins right out of the gate, laying out for us the glory and the majesty of God. In fact, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which you just heard read, is one continuous sentence. It's the second longest sentence in the entire New Testament. And the goal of this long and glorious sentence is to hold up before you the great and glorious God. Because the Apostle Paul is convinced if you understand who God is, and if you understand what God has done for his people, you will worship him. Your heart will come alive to his glory. Your affections will be stirred, and that will transform you. And so if you were to ask me what one thing I desire most for our church, what one thing would transform all of our conversations? What one thing does every student in student ministry need? What one thing would make every gospel community more vibrant? What one thing would change the way we pray? What one thing would deepen our engagement in mercy ministry and help us love our neighbors better? That one thing would simply be this, a deeper worship of God. Like that changes everything else. So that's our goal this morning. We worshiped our way into this mess. We'll have to worship our way out. I don't know where the mess is in your life or in your world this morning, but I want to invite you to worship your way out. All of our other problems are worship problems. Something else in your life has the weight and the significance that only God should have. And so the deepest answer is to see the glory of God and worship him more deeply. And that's the journey we're going to be on together for the next few minutes. Now, Christian worship, of course, is Trinitarian. We worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as he begins this letter, Paul holds up for us the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
He shows us that Christians are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is a very Trinitarian doxology, and it's going to follow a Trinitarian pattern. So that's our outline this morning. Christians are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Let's look together at Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using a Bible on your seat, you'll find it on page 917. Uh, let's look together at Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. The text reads this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved." Now, perhaps in elementary school, you learned the structure of a basic sentence is always subject, verb, direct object. Who's doing it? What are they doing? Who are they doing it with or for or to, right? Now, I want you to notice in this paragraph, the subject is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the actor. He is the one doing all the things listed here. He has blessed us in Christ. He chose us in him. He predestined us for adoption to the praise of his glorious grace. God is the one doing the action. We are the ones acted upon. Now, here's how most of us naturally think of salvation. We tend to think this way. God has made salvation available. He has sent his son, Jesus, to die for sin. Salvation is offered to all who will come to Jesus in faith. And if I'm a Christian, I've come to Jesus in faith. I've chosen to trust in him. And so God made salvation available. I chose to receive salvation. But if that's all there is to the story, here's the question. If that's all there is to the story, then who is the decisive actor in my salvation? I am, right? God made salvation available. I chose to trust in Jesus. Therefore, it's my choice that's really the decisive factor. And if that's true, then really, who gets the credit for my salvation? Well, me. The scriptures want you to see that behind and underneath your choice lies God's choice of you. Without denying the realness of your decision... The scriptures are saying there is a prior and more decisive choice that makes your choice possible. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So not only before you existed, but before anything existed, God chose a people for himself. He placed you and Christ together in his purposes. This is called the doctrine of election. And it should not surprise you because this is everywhere in Scripture. Like if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis and we think about how did this whole story get started. In Genesis 18, we find that God chose Abraham. Abraham, God says, Genesis 18, 18, will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed for I have chosen him. Likewise, God chose Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
God chose Abraham, God chose Israel, God chose David, Second Chronicles, or sorry, First Chronicles 28. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader. And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. God chose Abraham for his purposes. God chose Israel for his purposes. God chose David for his purposes. And he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul reiterates again in verse five, five, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Predestined. In other words, your destiny was foreordained by God. In love, he chose you and he placed you in Christ and he adopted you into his family as his son or daughter. This is why you are a Christian, because of the purposes of God. I had a mentor who used to like to use this illustration. He said, if you imagine um, faith in Christ as a door through which we enter into the kingdom of God and receive all the benefits and blessings of what it means to be part of God's kingdom, on the outside of that door is displayed the invitation of Jesus, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we come to that door, we see that invitation, we accept that invitation, we come to Jesus and we come through that door, and then on the other side of the door we look back and it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, election really only makes sense in the rearview mirror. Like, we come to faith in Christ, and then we ask, why did we get here? Why are we here? How did we come to faith? And the answer the Bible gives us is because God, before the foundation of the world, placed us in Christ. Now, obviously, a doctrine like this is mysterious and sublime, right? It starts to make us go, well, how does that all work? How does God fit all that together? How does his sovereignty and human responsibility come together in history? And some of those questions just have to remain questions because the Bible just reveals what it reveals. And what it's telling us right here in Ephesians 1 is he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And sometimes people have objections to the idea of that. And I want to let the great British scholar and Pastor John Stott speak to three of the common objections people have to this idea. He writes this, predestination is said by some to foster arrogance, but on the contrary, predestination fills God's people with astonishment that he should ever have had mercy on undeserving sinners like them. Humbled before the cross, they desire to live the rest of their lives only to the praise of his glorious grace. Predestination is said to foster apathy. For if salvation is entirely God's work and not ours, people argue, then all human responsibility before God has been undermined. On the contrary, it is abundantly clear that Scripture's emphasis on God's sovereignty never diminishes our responsibility. Instead, the two lie side by side. Predestination is said to foster uncertainty. And to create in people a neurotic anxiety as to whether they are predestined and saved or not. But this is not so. Even when passing through a period of doubt, believers know that in the end their security lies only in the eternal predestinating will of God. Nothing else can bring such assurance 
and comfort. And that's the heart of this passage, and that's the heart of this doctrine, is it's designed to bring us assurance and comfort, and here's why. Because if your hope of persevering in faith, if your hope of receiving the inheritance that God has promised in the new heavens and the new earth, if that's up to your faith, how confident do you feel? Do you not have days when you're like, I don't even know if I believe this? Do you not have moments where your heart feels cold toward God and you just wonder like, why do I just not seem to care very much right now? If your hope is in the strength of your own faith, you don't have a lot to hope in. But if your hope is grounded in the electing, predestinating, sovereign purposes of a glorious God who has called a people for himself, that is a firm foundation on which to stand. That can give you security and hope and confidence in the midst of whatever life might throw at you and whatever fickleness you might even see in your own hearts. And so verse 6 reminds us how this ought to cause us to respond to the praise of his glorious grace. This is about worship. This is about who is this God? What kind of honor and praise does he deserve from us? But it doesn't stop there. Not only are Christians chosen by the Father, they are redeemed by the Son. Verse 7, in him, that is, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Notice four words, redemption, blood, forgiveness, grace. First, redemption. Of all the words the Bible uses to describe salvation, this is maybe the most comprehensive. The word redemption speaks of deliverance. It speaks of freedom. It speaks of liberation. You remember that on October 7th, Hamas terrorists attacked Israel, killing 1,200 people and taking over 200 hostages. For the past 107 days, the entire world has been watching as Israel and Hamas try to sort things out and as Israel seeks the redemption of those hostages. They are captives held in bondage by a hostile power and their only hope is to be somehow liberated or set free. That's how the Bible describes the plight of human beings. We are captives. We are held in bondage by sin. We cannot free ourselves. We must be liberated. We must be delivered. And Jesus is the deliverer who has come to redeem us, to set his people free. The great biblical picture of redemption is the story of the Exodus. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. They cry out to him, and he comes to deliver them with a mighty hand and he sets them free from slavery, brings them through the Red Sea and delivers them into the promised land in a mighty show of his grace and power. And that exodus is a foreshadowing of a greater exodus accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and bring them into the promised land of his eternal kingdom. In him, in Jesus, we have Redemption through his blood. Now, this is a reference to the death of Jesus on the cross. Have you ever thought about why is the symbol of Christianity this thing? 
This is an instrument of torture. This was used to murder human beings. How did that become the sum and the symbol of Christian faith? Well, because it's the death of Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood on the cross, that redeems us from the penalty and power of sin. Jesus turned an instrument of death into an instrument of life and redemption. And again, this is all prefigured for us in the Exodus story. Exodus chapter 12, you'll see it on the screen here. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the institution of the Passover, which to this day the Jewish people celebrate in honor of God's deliverance and which Jesus was celebrating on the night he was betrayed with his disciples when he told them, this is a new covenant in my blood. Just as in the Passover, a lamb shed its blood so that the people of God would be spared, so Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb, shed his blood so that we, his people, could be spared. We have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses. So if redemption speaks of deliverance, forgiveness speaks of debt. Sin is a power that holds us captive. Sin is also a moral debt that we must pay. God, the great moral lawgiver, the righteous judge of all the earth, has given commands that he wants human beings to follow. He's given us the way in which we are to walk. He's also given each of us a conscience that speaks to us about what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. We have broken God's commands. We have violated our own conscience. We are therefore guilty. We stand as debtors to the court of heaven. I mean, the word used here, the forgiveness of our trespasses, that's a helpful word. Like you've probably been out hunting or out for a walk or out somewhere and come across a sign that says no trespassing. What does that mean? It means don't walk here. But we have walked there. Jesus, through his blood, not only has redeemed us, but he's forgiven us. He's wiped the slate clean. He's paid our moral debt that we owe to a holy God. And therefore, he's delivered us both from sin's power and also from sin's penalty. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. The word grace is just the word gift. This text is reminding you, God did this, not because you earned it or deserved it, simply because he is gracious and generous. And notice the words used here, the riches of his grace. In other words, his grace is valuable. Like when you understand the majesty of what God has given you in his grace, it becomes very valuable to you. You realize this is the most important thing I could possibly have in life. And it says the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. 
In other words, God is not stingy about his grace. God doesn't just have a little bit of grace to give, and so he's not sure. He kind of doles it out a little bit at a time. He's pouring it out. He's lavished it on us. He has plenty of grace to give. God the Father has chosen us. Jesus the Son has redeemed us and forgiven us by his blood through his grace. Now, in verses 9 through 12, I want you to notice the words, will, purpose, plan, purpose, will. Five times, catch this. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Should be evident to you from the repetition of those words that in the salvation of his people, God is working out a purpose. God is working out his plan. As modern American people, we tend to be very individualistic. We tend to think primarily about what is God's benefit for me. And so we often think that salvation is mainly about God taking me to heaven when I die. But this text is telling you salvation is much bigger than that. It's about me being included in the glorious plan God has been working out since the beginning of time. And that plan is given to us in verse 10. In fact, most scholars say verse 10 is the heart of the book of Ephesians. This is what it's all about. The plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's what God is up to in the world. That's the plan God is working out. Do you know what's wrong with the world? Fragmentation, disorder, fracture, separation, chaos. Every political movement is an attempt to reunite and put back together what's fragmented. Every social movement is an attempt to restore what's been disordered, but none of them can do it on the scale that it needs to be done. Only God can. And I want to remind you where this is all headed. What is the hope of the scriptures? If we fast forward to the end of the story, what's the hope the Bible gives us of what God's going to one day do? Revelation chapter 21 speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. And here's what it says in, chapter, in verse 3 of Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the hope of the world. The bringing together of heaven and earth. How are we going to get God and human beings back together? How are we going to get heaven and earth back together? How are we going to put back together what's fractured and broken? The answer is, that's what God's doing in Jesus. Our hope is God dwelling with human beings and salvation in Jesus Christ is the first fruits of that. God has chosen and predestined a people so that he might dwell among them as a foretaste of what is to come. That's what God's up to in the world. That's what God's doing right here, right now. God's gathering a people and dwelling among them 
as a foretaste and a picture of what will ultimately one day be. Which means, listen to me, if you don't want God, then you don't want salvation. Salvation isn't about heaven. It's not about getting to see all the people that you miss. It's about God. It's about dwelling in the presence of God. If that's not what you want, that's what Jesus offers. That's what this story is all about. And yes, as we dwell with God, everything else gets knit back together as well. That's what verse 10 is telling you. The purpose of God is uniting everything back together in Jesus. There's a huge story being written there, but it's all about how does God dwell with human beings? How do we get God's presence back among us? And what this text is saying is that all begins as Jesus dwells among us. And so that gets us to the third point. Christians are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed finally by the Spirit. Verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so notice how salvation comes. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Okay, so all the people that are prone to sort of separate the sovereignty of God and human responsibility and say, well, you know, if we're talking about predestination and election and God choosing people, then why does our response matter? This text doesn't separate those things, does it? It holds all of that together and says, yes, there's a God who is working out his eternal purposes in a people, and you know how that comes to bear in your life? When you hear the word of truth, the gospel, and believe in him. And when you hear and believe in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In the Roman world, when an emperor or a general wanted to send a communication or an order to some other part of the empire, they would write it, they would fold it and pour hot wax on it, and then imprint their signet ring into that hot wax as a seal. And that way, Anyone who received it knew it hadn't been tampered with or corrupted, and it came straight from the emperor. Likewise, those who believe in Jesus are marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in Christians and dwells in the church as a mark of authenticity, a sign that God is really at work. This really is his work. We really do belong to him. And verse 14, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, so that's cluing you in that there's stuff still to come. The reason we just fast forwarded to Revelation 21 and said, what is God doing in the world? Is because this tells us right here, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So there's something we don't have possession of yet. And the Spirit is the guarantee of that future possession. Now, if you've ever bought a piece of real estate, you know that part of what you do in a transaction like that is you put forward earnest money, an earnest deposit. What that earnest money is, is it's a portion of the purchase price that you put down right up front and it tells the seller there's more coming. Like this isn't just my word. This isn't just a handshake. This is money on the table that says the rest of the money's coming right behind this. This is a beginning of the payment that I'm going to make to you. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is the earnest deposit of the inheritance that is coming for the people of God. 
Why has God given us the Spirit? Because the Spirit is the down payment and the promise of what is yet to come. Just like the earnest money is part of the full payment, the Holy Spirit is part of our inheritance. Because remember, the inheritance is to dwell in the presence of God. The inheritance is heaven and earth put back together. So if the inheritance is us dwelling with God, the Holy Spirit dwelling among us now is the down payment of that future. Christians are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. The book of Ephesians starts with this lofty, beautiful doxology reminding you of what God is doing, Father, Son, and Spirit, in calling a people to himself for his glory. And I want you to notice, three times in this text, we come across this phrase, to the praise of his glory. And at each point, it's placed in the text after he tells us about what the Father has done, after he tells us about what the Son has done, and after he tells us about what the Spirit has done. It's first of all there in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. We should praise the glory of the Father, who in grace chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's there again in verse 12. To the praise of his glory. We should praise the glory of the Son who redeemed us by his blood and forgave our sins. And it's there in verse 14. To the praise of his glory. We should praise the glory of the Spirit who seals us and guarantees our future inheritance. This God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the beauty of what he has done and is doing among his people is worthy of our praise. To go back to where we began, we worshiped our way into this mess. We'll have to worship our way out. The scriptures here are holding up before you the majesty and the goodness and the glory and the beauty of God and saying, look, whatever you're praising, whatever it is in your life that you're excited about, you think is awesome, that you want to tell people about, it's not as good as this God. See who God is. See what God has done for his people and worship. Because Paul knows, the scriptures know, that when we really see the glory of what God has done, we'll be drawn in worship to him, and everything else follows that. Because at the end of the day, everybody worships. The most important question for your life is, what or who are you praising? What are you worshiping? What are you giving glory to? That's the question. And Paul knows as he begins this book where he's going to have all kinds of other things to tell us about what it means to be God's people in the world and even things about like how should you live at work? How should you relate in your gospel community? What should a healthy marriage look like? How should you raise your kids? Ephesians is going to tell us about all that stuff. But before it gets there, it wants to get one thing straight and that is, who are you praising? Who are you worshiping? What occupies the center of your attention and your affections? The grace of God, friends, really is glorious. Let's worship him now in prayer. And let's worship him by coming to his table. Pray with me. Our Father, what are we to say to these things? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. 
We praise you, Father, for your electing, predestinating, sovereign grace. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you've redeemed us by your blood and forgiven us all of our sins. We praise you, Holy Spirit, that you have sealed us and that you are the deposit of the inheritance that is to come. We would simply ask this morning that you'd increase our capacity to see you and to worship you and to praise you. We admit that we are distracted and attracted by all kinds of other things. None of them are as good and as weighty and as glorious as who you are and what you've done. So open our eyes in fresh ways this morning to your beauty and to your goodness and to the glory of what it means to belong to you and to be your people. Even as we come to your table now, help us come in humility. Help us come in joy. Help us come in freedom and in Trinitarian worship, rejoicing in what you, Father, Son, and Spirit have done for your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.